for, he is an even more perfect house, being one of the finest examples of Georgian architecture to be found in the entire country. The fate of this house is hardly less fortunate than that of the paternal manor, for, with its surrounding lands, it has come into the possession of Johns Hopkins University. The fields of Homewood now form the campus and grounds of that excellent seat of learning, and the trustees of the university have not merely preserved the residence, using it as a faculty club, but have had the inspiration to find in it the architectural motif for the entire group of new college buildings, so that the campus may be likened to a bracelet rod as a setting for this jewel of a house. Chapter VII Rare Old Town The drive from Baltimore to the sweet, slumbering city of Annapolis is over a good road, but through barren country taken in the crisp days of autumn, by a northern visitor sufficiently misguided to have supposed that beyond Mason and Dixon's line the winters are tropical it may prove an uncomfortable drive unless he be able to borrow a fur overcoat. It was on this drive that my disillusionment concerning the fall and winter climate of the south began, for, wearing two cloth overcoats, one over the other, I yet suffered agonies from cold. The sun shone down upon the open automobile in which we tore along but its rays were no competitors for the biting wind, through lap robes, cloth caps, and successive layers of clothing, and around the edges of goggles, fine little frozen fangs found their way, like the pliable beaks of a race of gigantic, fabulous mosquitoes from the Arctic regions, I had driven an open car over the New England snows for miles in zero weather, and been warm by comparison, because I was prepared, my former erroneous ideas as to the southern climate may be shared by others, and it is therefore well, perhaps, to enlarge a little bit upon the subject, never, except during a winter passage in a stone-tile-floored villa on the island of Capri, whither I went to escape the cold, have I been so conscious of it, as during fall, winter, and spring in the south, in the hotels of the south one may keep warm in cold weather, but in private homes it is not always possible to do so. For the popular illusion that the sunny south is of a uniformly temperate climate in the winter persists nowhere more violently than in the south itself. Many a house in Virginia, let alone the other states farther down the map, is without a furnace, and winter life in such houses, with their ineffectual wood fires, is like life in a refrigerator tempered by the glow of a safety match, as in Italy and Spain. So in the south it is often warmer outdoors than in, more than once during my southern voyage I was tempted to resume the habit, acquired in Capri, of wearing an overcoat in the house and taking it off on going out into the sunshine. True, in Capri we had roses blooming in the garden on Christmas Day, but that circumstance, far from proving warmth, merely proved the hardiness of roses. So, in the far south excepting Florida and perhaps a strip of the Gulf Coast of Louisiana, Mississippi, and Alabama the blooming of flowers in the winter does not prove that Palm Beach suits and Panama hats invariably make a desirable uniform. Furthermore, I am inclined to believe that because some southern winter days are warm and others cold, a northerner feels cold in the south more than he feels the corresponding temperature at home on somewhat the principle which caused the Italians who went with the Duke of the Abruzzi on his polar expedition to withstand cold more successfully than did the Scandinavians. Of the southern summer I had no experience, but I have been repeatedly assured that certain of the southern beaches are nearly, if not quite, as comfortable in hot weather as are those of New Jersey or Long Island, while in numerous southern mountain retreats one may be fairly cool through the hot months a fact which spells fortune for the hotel keepers of such high perch resorts as Asheville, White Sulphur Springs, and the Hot Springs of Virginia.
who had their houses full of northerners in winter and southerners in summer, the experience of arrival in Annapolis, delightful in any weather and at any time of year, gives one a satisfaction almost ecstatic after a cold, windy automobile ride such as we had suffered, to wake for the shelter of almost any town, or any sort of building, and, with such yearnings, to arrive in the streamy city, whose mild air seems to be compounded from fresh winds off a glittering blue sea, arrested by the barricade of ancient hospitable-looking houses, warmed by the glow of their sun-baked red brick, and freighted with a ghostly fragrance, as from the phantoms of the rose gardens of a century or two ago to arrive, frigid and forlorn in such a haven, to drink a cup of tea in the old pocket house now hotel, is to experience heaven after purgatory for there is no town that I know whose very house fronts hold out to the stranger that warm, old-fashioned welcome that Annapolis seems to give, the pocket house, which as a hotel has acquired the name Carville Hall, is the house that Winston Churchill had in mind as the manor's house, of his novel, Richard Carville, a good idea of the house, as it was, may be obtained by visiting the Bryce house, next door, for the two are almost twins, when Mr. Churchill was a cadet at Annapolis, before the modern part of the Carvel Hall Hotel was built, there were the remains of terraced gardens back of the old mansion, stepping down to an old spring house, and a rivulet which flowed through the grounds was full of watercress. The book describes a party at the house and in these gardens. The Chase House on Maryland Avenue was the one Mr. Churchill thought of as the home of Lionel Carvel, and he described the view from upper windows of this house, over the Harwood House, across the way, to the Severn, Annapolis. Baedeker tells me, was the first chartered city in the United States, having been granted its charter by Queen Anne considerably more than two centuries ago, it island as every little boy and girl should know, the capital of Maryland, and is built around a little hill upon the top of which stands the old state house in which Washington surrendered his commission and in which met the first constitutional convention, in its prime Annapolis was nearly as large a city as it is today, but that is not saying a great deal for at the present time it has not so many inhabitants as Amarillo, Texas, or Brazil, Indiana. Nevertheless, the life of Annapolis in colonial days, and in the days which followed them, was very brilliant, and we learn from the diary of General Washington and from the writings of amazed Englishmen and Frenchmen who visited the city in its period of glory that there were dinners and balls night after night, that the theater was encouraged in Annapolis more than in any other city that the race meets compared with English race meets both as to the quality of the horses and of the fashionable attendants, that there were sixteen clubs, that the women of the city were beautiful, charming, and superbly dressed, that slaves in sumptuous liveries were to be seen about the streets, that certain gentlemen paid calls in barges which were rowed by half a dozen or more blacks, in uniform, and that the perpetual hospitality of the great houses was gorgeous and extravagant, the houses hint of these things, if you have seen the best old brick mansions of New England, and will imagine them more beautifully proportioned, set off by balancing wings and having infinitely finer details as to doorways, windows, porticos, and also as to wood carvings and fixtures within as, for instance, the beautiful silver latches and hinges of the Chase House at Annapolis you will gather something of the flavor of these old southern homes, for though such venerable mansions as the Chase, Paca, Bryce, Hammond, ride out, and boardly houses, in Annapolis, are not without family resemblance to the best New England colonial houses, the resemblance is of a kind to emphasize the differences, not only between the mansions of the North and South, but between the builders of them, 
The contrast is subtle, but marked. Your New England house, beautiful as it island is stamped with austere simplicity. The man who built it was probably a scholar but he was almost certainly a Calvinist. He habited himself in black and was served by serving maids, instead of slaves in livery. If a woman was not flat-chested and forlorn, he was prone to regard her as the devil masquerading for the downfall of man and no doubt with some justice. 2. Night and morning he presided at family prayers, the purpose of which was to impress upon his family and servants that to have a good time was wicked, and that to be gay in this life meant hellfire and damnation in the next. Upon this pious person his cousin of Annapolis looked with something not unlike contempt, for the latter, though he too was a scholar, possessed the sort of scholarliness which takes into account beauty and the lore of cosmopolitanism. He may have been religious or he may not have been, but if religious he demanded something handsome, something stylish, in his religion, as he did also in his residence, in his wife, his sons, his daughters, his horses, coaches, dinners, wines, and slaves. He did things with a flourish, and was not beset by a perpetual consciousness and fear of hell. He approved of pretty women, he made love to them, he married them, he was the father of them. His pretty daughters married men who also admired pretty women, and became the mothers of other pretty women, who became, in turn, the mothers and grandmothers of the pretty women of the South today. Your old-time Annapolis gentleman's ideas of a republic were far indeed from those now current for he understood perfectly the difference between a republic and a democracy a difference which is not now so well understood. He believed that the people should elect the heads of the government, but he also believed that these heads should be elected from his own class, and that, having voted, the people should go about their business, trusting their betters to run the country as it should be run. This, at least, is my picture of the old aristocrats of Maryland, Virginia, and South Carolina as conveyed to me by what I have seen of their houses and possessions and what I have read of their mode of life. They were the early princes of the Republic and by all odds its most picturesque figures, very different from the spirit of appreciation and emulation shown by the trustees of Johns Hopkins University with regard to the old house. Homewood, in Baltimore, is that manifested in the architecture of the Naval Academy at Annapolis, where, in a city fairly flooded with examples of buildings, both beautiful and typically American. Architectural hints were ignored, and there were erected great stone structures whose chief characteristics are size, solidity, and the look of being government property. The main buildings of the academy, with the exception of the chapel, suggest the sort of sublimated penitentiary that Mr. Thomas Maud Osborne might, one fancies, construct under a carte blanche authorization, while the chapel, the huge dome of which is visible to all the country round, makes one think of a monstrous wedding cake fashioned in the form of a building and covered with white and yellow frosting in ornamental patterns. This chapel, one imagines, may have been inspired by the invalids in Paris, but of the invalids it falls far short. I know nothing of the history of the building, but it is easy to believe that the original intention may have been to place at the center of it, under the dome, a great well, over the parapet of which might have been seen the sarcophagus of John Paul Jones, in the crypt. One prefers to think that the architect had some such plan, for the crypt, as at present arranged, is hardly more than a dark cellar, approached by what seems to be a flight of humble back stairs, to descend into it, and find there the great marble coffin with its bronze dolphins, is not unlike going down into the cellar of a residence and there discovering the family silver reposing in the coal bin, 
In this connection it is interesting to recall the fact that our sometimes piratical and always brilliant revolutionary naval hero died in Paris, and that until a few years ago his resting place was unknown. The reader will remember that while General Horace Porter was American ambassador to France a search was instituted for the remains of John Paul Jones, the greater part of the work having been conducted by Colonel H. Bailey Blanchard, then First Secretary of the Embassy, assisted by the Ambassador and Mr. Henry Vietnam, Dean of Secretaries of Embassy. The resting place of Jones was finally discovered in an abandoned cemetery in the city of Paris, over which houses had been built. The body was contained in a leaden casket and was preserved in alcohol so that identification was easily accomplished by means of a contemporaneous likeness of Jones, and also by means of measurements taken from Houdin's bust. The remains were accorded military honors in Paris, and were brought to this country on a war vessel. Why the crypt at Annapolis is as it is, I do not know, but in my own purely imaginary picture of what happened, I see the architect's plans for a heroic display of Jones's tomb knocked on the head by some practical man, some worthy dunce in the Navy Department, whom I can imagine as protesting, but no, we can't take up space at the center of the chapel for any such purpose, it must be floored over to make room for pews, otherwise where will the cadets sit, so, although the grounds of the academy, with their lawns, and aged trees, and squirrels, and cadets, are charming, and although the solemn and industrious Baedeker assures me that the Academy is the chief lion of Annapolis, and although I know that it is a great school, and that we need another like it in order properly to officer our navy, I prefer the old town with its old houses, and old streets bearing such reminiscent names as Hanover, Prince George, and Duke of Gloucester. For certain slang expressions used by cadets I am indebted to a member of the Corps, from this admiral to be I learn that a bird or wazo is a man or a boy, that a pap sheet is a report covering delinquencies, and that to hit the pep is to be reported for delinquency, that steam is marine engineering, and to be bilged for juice is to fail in examinations in electrical engineering to get an unsolved or unsatisfactory mark, or even a zip or swabo, which is a zero. Cadets do not escort girls to dances, but drag them. A girl is a drag, and a heavy drag or brick is an unattractive girl who must be taken to a dance. A sleuth or Jim Ilegs is a night watchman, and to be ragged is to be caught. Mess hall waiters are sometimes called mokes, while at other times the names of certain exalted dignitaries of the Navy Department, or of the Academy, are applied to them. I shall never cease to regret that dread of the cold kept us from seeing ancient Whitehall, a few miles from Annapolis which was the residence of Governor Horatio Sharp, and is one of the finest of historic American homes, nor shall I on the other hand, ever cease to rejoice that, in spite of cold we did, upon another day, visit Hampton, the rare old mansion of the Ridgelys, of Maryland, which stands amid its own 5,000 acres some dozen miles or so to the north of Baltimore, the Ridgelys were, it appears, the great Protestant land barons of this region as the Carrolls were the great Catholics, and, like the Carrolls, they remain today the proprietors of a vast estate and an incomparable house. Chapter VIII We meet the Hampton Ghost There's nothing ill can dwell in such a temple, if the ill spirit have so fair a house. Good things will strive to dwell with thee the tempest. Hampton is probably the largest of Maryland's old mansions, and the beauty of it is more theatrical than the beauty of Dorgan Manor, for although the latter is the older of the two, the former is not only spectacular by reason of its spaciousness, the delicacy of its architectural details, 
and the splendor of its dream-like terraced gardens, but also for a look of beautiful, dignified, yet somehow tragic age a look which makes one think of a wonderful old lady, a belle of the days of minuets and powdered wigs and patches, a woman no less wonderful in her declining years than in her youth, but wonderful in another way, a proud old aristocrat, erect and spirited to the last, her bedchamber a storehouse of ivory lace and ancient jewelry, her memory a storehouse of recollections, like chapters from romantic novels of the days when all men were gallant, and all women beautiful, recollections of journeys made in the old coach, which is still in the stable, though its outriders have been buried in the slaves' burying ground these many years, recollections of the opening of Hampton, when, as the story goes, gay Captain Charles Ridgely, builder of the house, held a card party in the attic to celebrate the event, while his wife, Rebecca Dorsey Ridgely, a lady of religious turn, marked the occasion simultaneously with a prayer meeting in the drawing room, of the ball given by the Ridgelys in honor of Charles Carroll's granddaughters, the exquisite Kate and sisters, of Hunt Meets here, long, long ago, and Hunt Balls which succeeded them, of breakneck rides, of love making in that garden peopled with the ghosts of more than a century of lovers, of duels fought at dawn, of such vague, thrilling tales the old house seems to a whisper, never, from the moment we turned into the tree-lined avenue, leading to Hampton, from the moment when I saw the foxhounds rise resentfully out of beds which they had dug in drifts of oak leaves in the drive, from the moment when I stood beneath the stately portico and heard the bars of the shuttered doors being flung back for our admittance never, from my first glimpse of the place, have I been able to dispel the sense of unreality I felt while there, and which makes me feel, now, that Hampton is not a house that I have seen but one built by my imagination in the course of a particularly charming and convincing dream. Stained glass windows bearing the Ridgely coat of arms flank the front doorway, and likewise the opposing doorway at the end of the enormous hall upon which one enters, and the light from these windows gives the hall a subdued yet glowing illumination, so that there is something spectral about the old chairs and the old portraits with which the walls are solidly covered. There are portraits here by Gilbert Stuart and other distinguished painters of times gone by and I particularly remember one large canvas showing a beautiful young woman in evening dress, her hair hanging in curls beside her cheeks, her tapering fingers touching the strings of a harp. She was young then, yet the portrait is that of the great-grandmother, or great-great-grandmother, of present Ridgelys, and she has lain long in the brick-walled family burying ground below the garden, but there beneath the portrait stands the harp on which she played, one might tell endlessly of paneling, of the delicate carving of mantles and overmantles, of chairs, tables, desks, and sofas of Chippendale, Hathelite, Fife and Sheridan, yet giving such an inventory one might fail utterly to suggest the feeling of that great house, with its sense of home-like emptiness, its wealth of old furniture and portraits, blending together, in the dim light of a late October afternoon, to form shadowy backgrounds for autumnal reverie, or for silent, solitary listening listening to the tales told by the soughing wind outside, to the whisper of embers in the fireplace, the slow somber tick of the tall clock telling of ages past and passing, the ghostly murmur of the old house talking softly to itself, from the windows of the great dining room one looks away toward Hampton Gate, a favorite meeting place for the Elkridge hunt, or, at another angle, toward the stables where the hunters are kept, the old slave cabins, and the overseer's house with its bell tower a house nearly two hundred years old, but the library is perhaps the more natural resting place for the guest, and it looks out over the garden, 
with its enormous descending terraces, its geometrical walks and steps, its beautiful old trees, and arbors of ancient box. Such terraces as these were never built by paid labor. We were given tea in the library. Our hostess at this function being a young lady of five or six years a granddaughter of Captain John Ridgely, present master of Hampton who, with her pink cheeks, her serious eyes and demeanor, looked like a canvas by Sir Joshua come to a life, as she sat in a large chair and ate a large red apple, nor did Brian, Captain Ridgely's Negro butler, fit less admirably into the pervasive atmosphere of fiction which enveloped the place, in the absence of his master. Brian did the honors of the old house with a style which was not put on, because it did not have to be put on nature and a good bringing up having supplied all needs in this respect. There was about him none of that affectation of being a graven image, which one so often notices in white butlers and footmen imported from Europe by rich Americans, and which, of all shams, is one of the most false and absurd, as carried out on both sides for we pretend to think these functionaries the deft mechanisms, incapable of thought that they pretend to be, yet all the time we know and they know we know that they see and hear and think as we do, and that, moreover, they are often enough observant cynics whose elaborate gentility is assumed for hire, like the signboard of a sandwich man, Brian was without these artificial graces, his manner, in showing us the house, in telling us about the various portraits, indicated some true appreciation of the place and of its contents, and the air he wore of natural dignity and courtesy of being at once acting host and servitor constituted as graceful a performance in a not altogether easy role as I had ever seen, and satisfied me, once for all, as to the verity of legends concerning the admirable qualities of old-time Negro servants in the South. After tea, when fading twilight had deepened the shadows in the house, we went up the stairway past the landing with its window containing the armorial bearings of the family in stained glass, and, achieving the upper hall, crossed to a great bedchamber, the principal guest room, and paused just inside the door, and now, because of what I am about to relate, I shall give the names of those who were present, we were, Dr. Murray P. Brush, ABPH.D. Acting Dean of Johns Hopkins University, Dr. John M. Smith, Bergland of Baltimore, my companion, Wallace Morgan, illustrator, and myself. The light had, by this time, melted to a mere faint grayness sifting like mist through the many oblong panes of several large windows. Nevertheless I could discern that it was a spacious room, and from the color of it and certain shadowy lines upon the walls, I judged that it was paneled to the ceiling in white painted wood. I am under the impression that it contained a fireplace, and that the great four-post bed, standing to the right of the doorway, was placed upon a low platform, a step or two above the floor though of this I am not quite certain, the bulk of the bed and the dim light having, perhaps, deceived me, the rest of the furniture in the room was dark in color, and massed in heavy vague spots against the lighter background of the walls, directly before the door, at about the center of the wall against which it was backed, stood something which loomed tall and dark, and which I took to be either a gigantic clothes press or a closet built into the room, Looking past the front of this obstruction, I saw one of the windows, the piece of furniture was therefore exhibited sidewise, in silhouette. I do not think that I had definitely thought of ghost stories before, and I know that ghosts had not been spoken of, but as I looked into this room, and reflected on the long series of persons who had occupied it, and on where they were now, and on all the stories that the room must have heard, there entered my mind thoughts of the supernatural, having taken a step or two into the room. 
I was a little in advance of my three friends, and as these fancies came strongly to me, I spoke over my shoulder to one of them, who was at my right and a little behind me, saying, half playfully, there ought to be ghosts in a room like this. Hardly had I spoken when without a sound, and swinging very slowly, the door of the large piece of furniture before me gently opened. My first idea was that the thing must be a closet, built against the wall, with a door at the back opening on a passageway, or into the next room, and that the little girl whom we had met downstairs had opened it from the other side and was coming in. I fully expected to see her enter, but she did not enter, for, as I learned presently, she was in the nursery at the time. After waiting for an instant to see who was coming, I began to realize that there was no one coming, that no one had opened the door, that, like an actor picking up a cue, the door had begun to swing immediately upon my saying the word, ghosts. The appropriateness of the coincidence was striking. I turned quickly to my friends, who were in conversation behind me, and asked, speaking of ghosts did you see that door open? It is my recollection that none of them had seen it. Certainly not more than one of them had. For I remember my feeling of disappointment that anyone present should have missed so strange a circumstance. Someone may have asked what I had seen, at all events I was full of the idea, and, indicating the open door, I began to tell what I had seen, when exactly as though the thing were done deliberately to circumstantiate my story with the slow, steady movement of a heavy door pushed by a feeble hand, the other portal of the huge cabinet swung open. This time all four of us were looking, presently. As we moved across the wide hall to go downstairs again, Brian came from one of the other chambers, whither, I think, he had carried the young lady's supper on a tray. Are there supposed to be any ghosts in this house? I asked him. Brian showed his white teeth in the semi-darkness, whether he believed in ghosts or not. Evidently he did not fear them. Yes, sir, he said. We're supposed to have a ghost here. Where? In that room over there, he answered indicating the bedroom from which we had come. We listened attentively to Brian while he told how the daughter of Governor Swan had come to attend a ball at Hampton, and how she had died in the four-post bed in that old shadowy guest room, and of how, since then, she had been seen from time to time. They several people say they saw her. He finished. She comes out and combs her hair in front of the long mirror. However, as we drove back to Baltimore that evening, we repeatedly assured one another that we did not believe in ghosts. Chapter IX Are we standardized? Almost all modern European critics of the United States agree in complaining that our telephones and sleeping cars are objectionable, and that we are standardized in everything. Their criticism of the telephone seems to be that the state of perfection to which it has been brought in this country causes it to be widely used while their disapproval of our sleeping cars is invariably based on the assumption that they have no compartments which is not the fact, since most of the great transcontinental railroads do run compartment cars, and much better ones than the best wagons lifts, and since, also, all our sleeping cars have drawing rooms which are incomparably better than the most comfortable European compartments, the charge of standardization will, however, bear a little thought. It is true that most American cities have a general family resemblance that a business street in Atlanta or Memphis looks much like a business street in Pittsburgh, Cleveland, Buffalo, Milwaukee, St. Paul, Kansas City, or St. Louis and that much the same thing may be said of residence streets. Houses and office buildings in one city are likely to resemble those of corresponding grade in another, 
the men who live in the houses and go daily to the offices are also similar, so are the trolley cars in which they journey to and fro, still more so the Fords, which many of them use, the clothing of one man is like that of another, and all have similar conventions concerning the date at which without regard to temperature straw hats should be discarded, their womenfolk, also, are more or less alike, as are the department stores in which they shop and the dresses they buy, and the same is true of their children, the costumes of those children, and the schools they attend, every American city has social groups corresponding to similar groups in other cities, there is always the small, affluent group, made up of people who keep butlers and several automobiles, and who travel extensively, in this group there are always some snobs, ladies who give much time to societies founded on ancestry, and have a junkish feeling about social leadership, every city has also its fast group, people who consider themselves unconventional, who drink more than is good for them, and make much noise, some members of this group may belong to the first group, as well, but in the fast group they have a following of well-dressed hangers-on, and married men and women, youngish rather than young, who, with little money, yet manage to dress well and to be seen eating and drinking and dancing in public places, there is usually to be found in this group a hectic widow or to be at grass or sod and a few pretty girls who, having been given too much freedom at 18, begin to wonder at 28, why, though they have always been good fellows, none of the dozens of men who take them about have married them, to this aggregate ion drift also those restless husbands and wives whose glances rode hopefully away from their mates, a few well-bred drunkards, and a few men and women who are trying to forget things they cannot forget, then there is always the young married group a nice group for the most part living in comfortable new houses or apartments, and keeping, usually, both a small automobile and a baby carriage, they also go to the country club on Saturday nights, leave their motors standing in the drive, eat a lukewarm supper that tastes like popular mosh, and dance themselves to a wiltedness, another group is entirely masculine, being made up of husbands of various ages, their mutual bond being the downtown club to which they go daily, and in which the subjects discussed are politics, golf, 